0: start this study, I want you to help you understand something. This reason why I started to go, decided to go with this study, because we talked about a lot of things. We talked about, uh, you know, I said I might do Colossians. We talked about doing the cults. And, and all those things weighed on me until that one Sunday morning when I asked you, how many of you knew I said, I just assumed everybody knew the feeding of the 5,000, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And I was shocked when half the people didn't raise their hand. And then even some of those who raised their hand were saying, well, I only raised their hand because I didn't want to be seen as not knowing. So I realized that I really need to get back to some doctrinal teaching. I thought, I need to go to one book that's really going to hit on some doctrine as well as telling you how to live your life. And that's the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is an excellent book for you and I to understand who we are in Jesus and the salvation that we have and what it means for us. And then go beyond that and tell you now how to live your life. Now, I think it's a great book because, really, the biblic, that's the biblical model. Understand who you are, understand the theology, and the doctrine, and then from that you live your life. Now, when you look at church, we've had it reverse. The church has told you, straighten up, clean up your act, then grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is. Well, you've got to have a base from which to operate. You understand what I'm saying? You've got to have a base, because in Ephesians there's a beautiful picture of of, of taking off the old clothes and putting on new clothes. So putting off the old behavior and putting on new behavior. In order for you to take off the old behavior, you've got to understand who you are now. And then you've got to understand what's the new behavior to put on. So you're going to replace things. So, uh, so we're going to look at Ephesians. And so this is an introductory lesson today. We're going to look at the first two verses. And it's basically just the introduction, the greeting and, and a blessing. So I want you to notice with me, let's look at verses uh, 1 to 2 of the book of Ephesians. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of the letter is Paul, who founded the church in Ephesus. So the first thing I want you to see is the writer of this letter is Paul, who founded the church in Ephesus. So he's writing this church that he founded. Now this is probably taking place during his first imprisonment. You have to understand, Paul was imprisoned twice. This is sometime during his first imprisonment. So this would be sometime, probably Acts chapter, sometime probably after Acts chapter twenty, sometime in there uh, is when he's writing this letter, sometime after that point, maybe even after the book of Acts, the, the chronology of the book of Acts. All right, here's the other thing: the nature of his identity. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now you have to understand, in the hierarchy, you're probably, what's an apostle, George? Are there apostles today? And, and, and there are some groups today, maybe you were involved in a group, where they're, quote, uh, laying hands on apostles today. Well, there are no apostles today because of the, the criterion for an apostle, we know from the book of Acts, is that they had to be there with Jesus during his ministry. They had to see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul is one of those who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. So there aren't any apostles today because I don't know of anybody today who has seen the post-resurrected body of Jesus Christ. I don't know of anybody. So he, that, it's a special teacher who is establishing the church. And that's what the 12 were, and that's what the apostle Paul is because he was establishing the church among the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice something. Look with me at verse 1. I want you to notice how Paul identifies himself. How does he start off the letter? The very first verse tells you how he starts off the letter. What does he identify himself? First of all, he identifies himself as what? Paul. Now, notice what he didn't write. The Most High Reverend Paul. Did you notice that? It's not there. Bishop Paul. He didn't write that. He didn't even say Apostle Paul. So I want you to notice that when he talks about being Apostle, is he saying he was a title when he mentions Apostle there, or is he talking about his position? He's talking about his position in the church. Now, what do you think is significant about that? Okay, I heard somebody say, Humble. Who said that? Rhonda said Humble. Why do you think he's doing that? This is something for you and I to grasp today. Okay, pretty much throughout his ministry, uh, Bruce is saying he was humble. He didn't act puffed up. He wasn't bringing stuff on himself. Okay, what else? He's not going to let pride take over. Here's what I want you to notice. When you go through any of the letters, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, you're going to find that none of them identify themselves in any other way than this. They'll just say their name. And then they'll say, called to be an apostle. Or, you know, by his mercies, this. So what I want you to see is, with the early church and with them, there wasn't a focus on the position or the title. Now, they had authority, you understand they have authority. You see that in the they have authority. They understand who they are, and everybody understands who they are, but they're not focused on that. Now let's come back. Let's go forward about two two thousand years to where we are today in our church in North America. How are we doing today with this, as far as our leaders? Rob's shaking his head. No. What's the focus today? Okay. The title. The do, You know. What did you say, Denny? Look who I am. So whenever you see somebody identify themselves, they'll identify themselves as what? Reverend or bishop or, or doctor, so and so. You know. And the focus is on look at me and the position I'm holding. Do you see that with the Apostle Paul here? No. Because here's the thing I want you to see. And, and this burns me. I'll just be honest with you. It burns me because you know, Joy and I have had conversations when she's at the bank. You know, sometimes there'll be a clergy member, a colleague, as I would call them, I because they're colleagues to me, come in and insist on the folks at the bank referring to them as Reverend or Pastor. First of all, they might not even know Jesus, they even go to church. Why am I, why do they need to make that why do they need to make that distinction? What's the focus there, folks, folks? Now, do you see? This is the apostle. He wrote half of the New Testament. He influenced the writing of two other books, probably. What other two other books? Well, his close companion was Luke, who wrote what? The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Hebrews is not written by Paul, but it's obvious that he was very much an influence in the writer of the Book of Hebrews. So when you think about most of the New Testament... Paul's name is there. So he must be some kind of important guy, isn't he? The fact that we are here today is because of Paul's ministry. The fact that he reached out to Gentiles. And look at how he identifies himself. Paul. I'm an apost- called to be an apostle. Isn't that Interesting. What, now, see, here's why I sort of want to make, point it out to you, because here's what I want you to see. The mindset that they have is the mindset that we need to have. The mindset that they had was is that the only one who deserves to be exalted, the only one who deserves to be in a high place is who, folks? Jesus. Not a servant. You understand what I'm saying? A servant. In fact, Paul would many times refer to himself as a slave of Jesus. Does that help you understand? Now, don't get irritated with some pastor who wants to be, you know, just pray for him. Don't have a, oh, you just don't have your act together thing. Pray for him. So notice the nature of his identity. He identified himself as apostle. Here's, he's going to show you God's choice. He states that he was appointed by God. Now, this is going to come out in the book of Ephesians. When you talk about leadership in the church, see, we're, we're into the democracy thing in our in our culture where we elect our leaders. And even, you know, I'm your pastor because back ten years ago, in, in a few months, they had a vote here after I came and preached a while. They had a vote and said, You know, do you want George to be the pastor? And so the vote was unanimous, yes. And so in a sense, you know, but ultimately in God's perspective, he's the one who appoints. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's the one who appoints. And so I want you to see here that he's saying that he was an apostle by the appointment of God. So notice now who he's writing to the recipients there. We see it in the second part of verse verse To the saints who are in Ephesus faithful in Christ Jesus. So, Paul addresses his letter to the believers in Ephesus. So, if you notice on the little map there in your study book, you'll see what is today known as modern-day Turkey, it was then known as Asia Minor, and over near the uh, western coast of what is today modern-day Turkey is the little, is a major city called Ephesus. So it's the major city called Ephesus there. Now let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. In Paul's day, Ephesus was the leading city in the province of Asia. So it would be, if you're going to make it comparable to anything here, I wouldn't say it's Pittsburgh, but it's definitely like Philly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because, I mean, we have two major cities, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but everybody recognizes that Philadelphia is a whole lot bigger than Pittsburgh. So Ephesus would be comparable to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And what was going on there, what made it so prominent is is that the temple of Artemis or Diana, or as the Romans would say, Venus, was was there. And it was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. All right? It was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, Venus, so it's the goddess of love, it's a fertility god, so they have a very big focus on the worship of the fertility god there. At one time, it was a major trading port, and by the time of Paul, the harbor was basically silted up. The economy was in decline and dependent on tourist worshipers who made the pilgrimage to the temple. The souvenir trade flourished, hence the prosperous guild of silversmiths who Livelihood was tied to the worship of the temple. So what we're going to see there is that so basically it's in decline, but what they're doing is rather than the harbor now being the focus of the economy, the temple becomes the focus of the economy. And so it developed like its own industry where tourists would come and then people would be making little statues of Artemis or or Diana and so forth. So that's why you understand later in the book of Acts. When there's a big upheaval among the silversmiths that Paul's turning the world upside down, it's because people are coming to Jesus and they're no longer what? Buying their stuff. Buying their stuff. So what we're going to see there, and because of time we're not going to go through it, you can look at it on your own. I've got several different sections there to kind of give you Paul's contact with the Ephesians. So there's his first contact. We see that in in Acts chapter 18. We see a second contact, Acts chapter 19. We see his commission to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20. And then we're going to look forward all the way to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, which kind of tells you where they were later on, way after this letter was written. But I want to focus on item number 2 there in your thing, the description of the church. So here's what I want you to see. He refers to them as saints and faithful brethren. He refers to them as saints and faithful brethren. So I want you to notice, now for some of you here who have a Roman Catholic background, that's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to grasp here with that whole concept of saint, because saint to you is somebody who's dead and who was special in the church. But that's not a New Testament concept. I want you to understand what is the New Testament concept. Saint, means sacred or holy ones. Saint means sacred or holy ones. So what he's saying is, is he's referring to the believers in Ephesus as a holy one or that they're sacred to Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you realize that you are in a biblical sense a saint here? Does everybody understand that? You know, we used to say, oh, he's just acting like a saint, Mr. Perfect. That's in a derogatory sense. But in a a real sense, you are a holy one. Now, you say, well, I'm not perfect. I sin. Yes, but you are holy not because of what you've done, which is what we're going to see in this letter. You're holy because of what who has done? Jesus has done for you. So saint means a sacred or holy one. And then when he talks about them being faithful, here's what he's saying. Faithful refers to their testimony, to how they live their lives. So he's reflecting on who they are positionally. They are saints, they're holy ones. But he's also reflecting upon their practical life and that they are faithful in the way that they live their life. Is that a description of you? When you look at you you might say, "Yeah, I'm holy in Jesus," but the question is, are you practically holy in Jesus? Are you faithful? Are you faithful? And then finally, look at Paul's salutation. Verse two is one big salutation, and here's what I want you to see. This is tr- this same statement will be found in several of the letters, and here's what he's doing. He's bestowing a traditional blessing of grace and peace. From the Father in Jesus. Now, let me just take this statement a little bit deeper here. If you were to go today and you were to be among Jews, how would they greet you today? What do they say to you when they greet you? Anybody know? Shalom. Does anybody know what shalom means? Peace. Shalom means peace. Or Salem. Or like, for instance, when you see Jerusalem... It's the city of peace. Do you realize that? There's no peace in Jerusalem, is there? But it's the city of peace. So for the Jewish believer, the traditional greeting would be Shalom. For a Gentile believer, it would be Grace or Charis. It would be Grace. So basically he's giving a traditional blessing basically to a mixed group of people who are made up of what? Gentiles and Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. And to both of them, he says what? Grace to the Gentiles. Peace to those Jewish believers there. You understand? So it's a traditional blessing. Now let's stop for a moment. We're going to take some questions just on these first two verses. Maybe you want to reflect on Paul and his apostleship. Maybe you want to reflect on, the, on how he sees the church as far as their identity. So has anybody got a question? He is more than likely, he could be anywhere. We don't know exactly where he's writing a letter from, but when you go from about Acts chapter 20, from that point on he ch- travels down to Jerusalem. He appoints the elders. He says, guys, I'm going to be away from you. He appoints some elders if you read Acts chapter 20. And then from there he goes down to Jerusalem. He's, he's taken into captivity. And from Jerusalem, he goes from Jerusalem for a few days up to Caesarea Philippi, where, you know, basically King Agrippa is, or Festus is, who is the proconsul. While he's there, he's probably there about two years or so, maybe three years. That's when he makes his appeal to Caesar, and he has to take the trip from Palestine all the way up to Rome, so... And that's not like hopping on a plane and being in there, being there in six hours. Remember, he's traveling during the winter. He's got to harbor different places, and then he makes it to Rome. And then when he's in Rome, he's under house arrest, and at some point he's going to stand before Caesar. So it could take months for his case to come up, maybe even years, because everybody understands how bureaucracy is, right? All right. And you understand how judicial bureaucracy is. It's like you think your case is coming up, and they postpone it. Think about this. This is Rome. It's exactly like that there, except they're not as efficient as we are, if we could call ourselves efficient today. Now, here's the reality. So sometime, it could be any time after that that several-year period from the time he gets arrested to the time that he finally appears before Nero, and he's released. So somewhere in that several-year period of time, he wrote this letter. Next week, we're going to get right into it. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's praise of the Trinity. Now what? So we're going to look at his praise. You say, okay, so we're going to look at him give a praise to God. But here's what I want you to see. From his specific praise, we're going to look at it over two weeks, We're going to see specifically what God has done in the issue of our salvation. Each person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a role in your salvation. And we're going to see exactly what they did, and it's very humbling. And you need to understand that if you're going to live the life that he's called you to live. You need to understand exactly what God did for you. So as he praises God, we're going to have an understanding of what he did when we got saved. All right? Let's close our time of prayer.